let's pray. And then we're going to turn to the word of God together. Father, it is so sweet to look around and to see these faces who know you and love you, but maybe even better than that, who are known by you and loved by you. We rejoice to gather and worship and adoration of our God who has rescued us from sin and given us victory in this life and the life to come. Lord, I pray that comes through loud and clear this morning as we study your word together. God, I ask that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher, our guide, our encourager, our comforter, and the one who convicts. Lord, may I just be a spokesman and a vessel for your powerful word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. If you'd open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, uh, we're getting to the end of the book and therefore the end of our series. And as often happens, uh, when you get to the back half of a biblical book, uh, it can start to feel a little repetitive, a little redundant. Uh, the author will often circle back to themes that they've already developed, uh, kind of like a preacher trying to land the plane of his sermon, you know, and you wonder, come on, man, just land the plane, get to the end of it. And uh, sometimes uh, I think with John in particular, it almost feels like you're kind of hanging out with one of these old guys who's telling you a story they've told you many times. You know how the story goes. You know how it ends, right? It gets a little better every time they tell it, but it's still the same story. And there is a little bit of this going on at the back half of um, this first epistle of John here. And um, because of that phenomenon, I'm going to try to move quickly over some of the material that we've already covered and focus on some aspects that are going to be a little bit new. So I'm not going to handle everything evenly, uh, if you will. And then also just to caution you, right about the time you think I'm supposed to be landing the plane, I'm going to take a little theological detour right at the end uh, that I think is important. There's kind of a minor theological point made here, but I think it has a major theological implication for the contemporary church. But overall, what we're going to hear together today is this. John helps us to be confident in our sonship, that we are children of God. And then he helps us to be confident in Christ's sonship, that he really occupies the office of the Christ, so that we can be confident about eternal life through faith in him. This, this whole passage is about a confident Christian life. Now, if you as a Christian are regularly talking to non-Christians, uh, and I hope you are, I hope you're having regular gospel conversations with those who don't yet believe, and if you're doing that with gentleness and love and care, uh, there will be in time uh, opportunities where they will be transparent with you and let you into their life. And sometimes you will hear somebody say something like, the life that I have constructed for myself outside of Christ isn't working. There's holes in it. Something is missing. Something isn't holding up. Or they might compare their lack of confidence, their insecurity with a sense that you seem to have confidence in, in life and what's the difference there. These are really key moments and great opportunities as you're sharing your faith with others. You need to be a good steward of that moment. And when they say that, it doesn't even necessarily mean that their life might be falling apart. They may look very successful uh, by worldly standards or by any standards, 
But oftentimes underneath there is kind of this uneasy conscience about the value of the life that they're living with this sense of being made for something more. And I think that's a universal human condition. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3 speaks to this, where it says, He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. There is this sense in the human heart that we were meant for more than just 70 or so years on this rock spinning around a fireball in the sky. There's this sense that we're made for more than that. And truth be told, it's not just those who are not Christians who sometimes leave, lead an insecure life. There are believers uh, that kind of live with a great degree of insecurity as well. And that does not need to be the case. And I think that's what the Apostle John is getting at here in sort of these closing passages of this book. He wants to give us a pathway to a confident Christian life, a life that is fit for the here and now, and a life that is fit for eternity. So let's look at chapter 5, starting with verse 1. We're going to break this into two sections. We'll look at the first five verses here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So I think uh, basically what's happening here is John is sort of answering a, a question. How can we be confident that we are a child of God? And I think it's important to understand that child of God is not the default status of human beings. Um, you might hear some, a well-intentioned person say that, you know, well, we're all children of God. Uh, no, actually we're not. We're all creations of God. We're all creatures of God. We're all loved by God. But we have to be rescued by God and taken out of our sin and adopted into his family to become his child. Our, our default position is, is those that are sinners, that are rebels against the Lord. That's where we start. And C.S. Lewis, I think, has captured this really well. I've used this here in the last couple of weeks, but... He says this, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. Rather, he is a rebel that needs to lay down his arms. That's our default position with the Lord. Rebels actively engaged in a conflict against God. And we need to be redeemed from that. And so this is kind of how our, our, our status is changed with him. It is through repentance and faith. We acknowledge our sin. We repent of it, turn away from it, and express saving faith in Christ. And then we become a child of God. And that nature, that status, that change doesn't come just through empty rhetoric or magic words. It comes through real, robust faith. That is, entrusting ourselves holy to God, not just believing that, but believing in. 
Uh, the reformers had a good way of sort of talking about and thinking about sort of different levels of belief. And uh, I want to try to use that this morning because I think it's helpful. I will caution you, they used Latin, so we're going to use their Latin. The first word is notia. And it simply means understanding of facts or data points. In other words, I could say, yeah, there's uh, good scientific evidence that exercise is good for me. Um, good to know. Boy, uh, hand me that cinnamon roll. <laughs> right? The next level of knowledge, if you will, would be a census. And that sort of is, that's acknowledging that the data is true, not just that it's out there, but an affirmation of it. Or, in other words, I agree. Exercise would be good for me. Boy, this cinnamon roll is delicious, right? Then there's the third level of knowledge, fiducia. And this is where one exercises trust and makes our lives consistent with the truth claim. In other words, I might say, not only do I know there's data out there that exercise is good, and not only do I agree that it's true, I'm going to go to the gym, actually get through the doors and do a few reps on a piece of equipment uh, because I ate two cinnamon rolls, right? <laughs> so that's kind of a, a way of thinking about knowledge, not just believing that something is true, not even just agreeing that it's true, but entrusting ourselves to one, fiducia or faith. That is how our status is changed before God. Believing that Jesus is the Christ means that he is God's son sent to carry out God's mission, that he occupies the office of the Christ, the savior of the world. It's not that Christ is his last name. You know, it's not last name Christ, first name Jesus. But he occupies an office by which God sent him in the world to be our savior. And when we do that, not just mentally, not just agreed upon, but in trusting faith, we call this saving faith. And when that happens by God's grace, spiritual transformation takes place in our life. And there will be evidence, fruit of real conversion, fruit of the regeneration which God has done in us. And so we come back to our question, then how can we be confident that we are God's child well, I think there are sort of three pieces of evidence given here, three marks that John lists that verify that we are God's child. And I'll tell you up front, I think the reason he's using three um, is very strategic on his part. He does it here, and then he does it again in the second half of this passage. But in the first century world, and even beyond that, the ancient world, uh, sort of in the courtroom of law, something had to be confirmed by two or three witnesses to be verified as true. And I think he's employing three witnesses of his two main points here. And so three marks that verify we are God's child. The first is belief, which we have uh, already covered. Not just believing that, but believing in, entrusting ourselves. But the second mark that one is a child of God that John lists is love. We've covered this extensively in the book as well. Love especially for the children of God. This is something that God produces in us. If the chief description of God in the scriptures is love, and if love is the animating force behind all that God does, then we, as those who are indwelt by God himself, by his spirit, 
will have that appearance, will have that aroma about us. If God is love and he is in us, love will be conspicuous in our lives. I like the way one author said it. He said, true faith leads to a particular quality and depth of love. And as we see it here, it is especially for family of God. Uh, Or as the Godfather said, you don't go against the family, right? There is a special kind of love and affection that Christians have for one another in the family of God. And the third mark, um, sort of witness or evidence that one is a child of God is obedience. And I'm going to spend a little time here because this is sort of the new theme that we haven't had much of in, in this particular book. This is the desire to embrace the teachings of Christ and to conform our life to them. Uh, and we see this here in verse 3. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Um, because we could probably all identify a few commands and think, well, you know, loving some people feels quite burdensome. Or I'll ask you about this. Have you ever had to forgive somebody? I think that's some of the most difficult work that we do. So what does he mean by this? Um, I would tell you that especially when we're looking at apostles who sat directly under the teaching of Jesus, uh, like John uh, or like Peter, listen for those Jesus echoes in their teaching in ways that they sort of recall what they heard from Christ and sort of rearticulate them for their audience and for their scenario. And I think John is recalling a teaching of Jesus here. Is it maybe coming to mind for you? Maybe in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Contrary to popular opinion, Jesus did not come to load us up with a whole bunch of new burdens and chores and lists of to-dos. Jesus comes to take away the burdens that we've all been carrying around of sin and guilt and shame, and striving, and trying to earn status, fears, failing. Jesus' teaching in the Gospels to his disciples is how to live with the grain in life. He is the author of life. He knows something about how it is to be lived. He's saying, come to me, learn of me, let me talk to you about how life was meant to go. He's not loading us with new burdens. He's unloading us with burdens. Uh, This past week, I was moving vehicles around my yard to plow, as we all did. And uh, I took my wife's Land Cruiser and tried to park it in a different place so I could plow where I needed to. And I I hung a front tire off into the soft stuff. Anybody else do it this week? Anybody want to admit it? Come on, come on. uh, I'm the only one. All right, four or five of us. Some of you are liars. Okay, I'm going to add five minutes onto the sermon just for that right there. (laughs) Hang with me now, hang with me. 
I got the tire uh, hung off there, and I'm trying to get it out. I'm trying to get it out. I can't get it going. And you know how this goes. The tire where you want traction is not turning. The tire where you uh, don't need traction is spinning away, right? And you sit there, and you look at this. You're like, oh, this is ridiculous. And it was kind of perched just so, and uh, Amy was helping me, and I said, uh, Amy, I need a little weight on this side of the vehicle. How would you like to come over here and stand on the step right here and help out? And she says, I wouldn't like that at all. <laughs> Isn't that romantic, ladies? <laughs> Honey, would you be ballast for me so I could get the vehicle out? She wasn't having it. But then I remembered something. The reason we got this vehicle and love this vehicle is because it has a locking differential. Oh, pushed it in, turned it over, and just a few little rocks, and boom, we rolled, rolled right out. I thought, that is so cool. That's how it's designed. All the wheels lock up and turn evenly, and you actually get power where you need it. And Jesus comes to do this for us as well. He's not loading us up with extra burden. He's showing us how we get freed from it. That is what Christ does for us. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. He is the author and the engineer of life, and he knows something about how it is to be lived. Obedience to Christ, though in some aspects hard, produces a freedom that is light compared to the weight and the heaviness of sin and guilt and shame. Our obedience to Christ very often on the front end is an act of faith. We think if I forgive this person, they're going to harm me again. If I love this person, it's going to be a burden. But oftentimes what we find is when the obedience of faith comes, we find a freedom after the fact that we didn't expect. He knows what he's talking about. Well, the result of these three things, this belief, this faith, this love, this obedience, there is a result that he identifies here, and that is this, that we have come, we have overcome the world, that we begin to live a victorious kind of life. And, and we end up going through life with a qualitatively different perspective of challenges and setbacks and losses and disappointments and threats and brushes with every kind of evil. We already know we are victorious in Christ. The early church fathers called this, they referred to this as Christus Victor, another Latin phrase, lots of Latin this morning. And it is uh, identified as a particular theory of atonement, and that's what we're going to get to at the end, and I'll come back to this. We're doing this a little bit nerdy this morning. That's all right. I'm a nerd. And so we're going to come back to what this means. But Christus Victor, we are already victorious in Christ. All right, now we move on to his second point here where he's sort of asking another question. How can we be confident that Jesus is God's son? If, in fact, this is what we have to believe in, is it worthwhile? Is it believable? Can it be trusted? Verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar 
because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Okay, that passage plenty clear for you. Nice and easy right there for the taking, right? This is hard. This is one of those times where as the pastor, you're like, I've got to preach this on Sunday. I need a couple more weeks, please. Uh, And I will tell you, the more you study, the deeper you get, the more opinions there are. This is one of those places in scripture where I think there's, there's just a bit of a lack of clarity, if you will. Don't worry, we're going to deal with this here. First of all, three evidences are given that Jesus is God's son. Again, it's like three witnesses to verify. The water, come on here, clicking slow. The spirit and the blood. Now the confusion lies in what are each of these elements in reference to? Uh, I will tell you, while we can kind of get hung up on that, and I did a little bit in my study this week, there, I, I discovered seven different theories on what these three things pertain to. And there's more. I just kind of quit at seven. Um, Even though there is confusion about what each of these specific things might refer to to make John's argument, his argument is still very clear. The point that he is making uh, is that Jesus is the Christ, that he is simultaneously God and man from birth in his public ministry all the way to his death. That's the point. We know that's the point. How he makes that from these specific references is where there is some debate and where there is some discussion. But that is the primary point even of the book as a whole, and we saw that in the beginning. So I'll have you refer back to 1 John 1. He says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the whole point of the book, to affirm, particularly to these defectors of the church, who were practicing a heretical kind of understanding of Christ to confirm who he was, his identity as both God and man for the entirety of his life. That's his point. The false teachers were teaching in contradiction to that. And when you see kind of what their heresy was, you can kind of understand a little more what these references might be. But the heresy at that particular time was this. The false teachers were affirming that Jesus was born only as a man lived as a man until his baptism. That at his baptism, God the Son descended upon the human Jesus, was with him through his ministry, and left him right prior to his death. That was the false teaching that was being circulated at that particular time. What's the implication of that? If Jesus is not both God and man at the time of his death, He does not atone for our sin. And here's one of the problems when we try to square every single mystery in the scriptures with human logic and try to make everything accord in the way that we would like it to. They ended up eviscerating the gospel. They took out the atonement of Christ. 
And so what John wants to confirm here is that Jesus was the Christ, simultaneously God and man, from his birth, through his public ministry, all the way into the end of his life. That God was born, that God ministered, that God died. He's confirming this whole thing. So here's my theory on what each of these references are. I will tell you, hold this with an open hand. I believe the water refers to his physical birth. That is often the way scriptures refer to water, to birth by water. As, uh, as a expecting mom, her water might break. This is the way it's often referred to. It's kind of a euphemism. The spirit, I think this is the spirit's testimony of Jesus when he is baptized and comes upon him confirming who he was. And blood, I think, is a reference to his death. So he's saying that he was the Christ from his birth through his ministry to his death. And I think that's what John is clarifying here. And what is the result? We have eternal life through the Son. Preserving these key elements of the fact that he was simultaneously God and man preserves the heart of the gospel and its saving power in our life, which leads him to the conclusion. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He means to give this remnant church, who was a bit insecure about these two questions because of the defectors, confidence in the Christian life because of what God has given them in Christ Jesus. Now we turn to this last little theological excursion here. Uh, this is, I'm going to talk a little bit about theories of atonement. So, um, you know, if you've got snacks, have a quick snack. This is going to just take a couple minutes here. But I'm going to stretch your brain just a little bit, okay? When we say theories of atonement, what we're talking about is trying to understand what the mechanics were as Christ died for sinners. What happened between us and God because of his work, and how did that happen? What are the mechanics there? There are numerous theories of the atonement, and they don't need to be held necessarily in opposition to one another. We kind of need to draw from several of them because I don't think any one of them captures the whole thing. I'll just give you a quick list of some of them that are out there. Penal substitutionary atonement, you probably know that one, even if you don't know it by its name. Ransom theory, Christus Victor, I'm going to talk about that one, recapitulation, governmental, and moral influence. That's just a handful. You can tell I had my systematic theology book out this week. These are some of the theories of atonement as we try to figure out the mechanics of what happened on the cross between us and God because of Christ's work. Now, if you take your hand out and flip it over, um, this is going to be helpful for us this morning. The conservative evangelical church, which is what we are, typically holds strongly to substitutionary atonement, and rightfully so, that Christ died for our sins and that he appeased God's wrath and for what was due us. Uh, that's just a very quick summation of it. Um, and that is true and wonderful and primary, and we must defend that and proclaim that. That is right. But if we have only that then we're missing something. And I would say that we also need Christus victor. We need to recognize that Christ was victorious over sin and death and evil powers, that we live a victorious life here and now and in the life to come. 
So here's what I want you to do with that paper on the back. If you take a, your pen, if you've got one or pencil, and right from the center where it says substitutionary atonement, draw a long line straight to the bottom of your page. This looks at the vertical dimension of the atonement. Christ reconciled us to the Father by paying our debt, okay? But now I want you to look at the, the Christus Victor on the left-hand side of your page, and I want you to draw a short line across. And if you do it right, you should come up with a cross on your page, okay? Uh, this is like teaching someone how to do the paper airplane. Remember that when you look at the charts, fold here and... And I think that is a good way of looking at these theories of atonement. If we only have substitutionary atonement, then we fail to recognize that God has given us a victorious life in the here and now. And we're missing out on something that John is clearly affirming here. On the other hand, there are some who reject substitutionary atonement and they only believe Christus victor. And the result is kind of a secular or a religious humanism in life. I'll give you two examples of guys who do that to watch out for. One is Rob Bell. Rob Bell does not like substitutionary atonement, and he has rejected it, and really he is a heretic who has left the church. Okay? And the reason he did not like it was because it made God out to look like an abusive father. Divine child abuse is what he calls substitutionary atonement. That God would send his son to suffer for others? Divine child abuse. What he forgets is that Jesus is simultaneously God and gives of himself, right? No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. So he forgets that but doesn't like it and dismisses it and just affirms a Christus Victor mindset. And it just exists on a vertical plane. Another person who does this is a guy named uh, Gregory Boyd, also a guy to watch out for. He has a book called God's at War. And what he affirms here is that because Christ is victorious and therefore we're victorious, we have power over evil forces, demons, Satan, and the like. Therefore, we don't need to worry so much about the gospel going into the world. We just need to go and seek out power encounters with the demonic and exercise demons and these kinds of things. This is what happens when you don't have both the vertical and the horizontal. Substitutionary atonement is primary, which is why I've asked you to draw the long line, because our sin is primarily against God, and Christ has taken our place on the cross. But the conservative evangelical church needs to also recognize that Christus Victor is also right and important on balance. It's secondary. We do have a victorious life in the here and now that continues on into eternity. John is trying to give insecure Christians a sense of confidence. How do they know that they are child of God? How do they know that, God, that Jesus is God's son? And what does this produce in life? It produces a victorious Christian life, here and now and in the life to come. I'll close with this one quote from Jeremy Treat here as he describes the need for both of these two theories of atonement. He says this, penal substitutionary atonement and Christus Victor are doing different things in the explanation of the cross. Substitutionary atonement explains the means of victory. Christus Victor explains the effects of Christ's accomplishment over Satan and over his dominion over sinners. We need both. 
this cross-like, vertical and horizontal, to know what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If you have the Son, you have life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we've, uh, we dove into the weeds here. We went to the deep end of the pool. We thank you that you dove into the deep end of the pool by sending your Son, and Jesus, that you were obedient, that you gave of yourself for our sins. And we recognize that in doing that, you have given us life right here and right now as victors over all of these things that come up against us in life. And this life boils over into eternity. We have a confidence because of your great sacrifice and your great resurrection that we are more than conquerors. We are victorious in Christ Jesus. Thank you for doing what we could not do. May our lives be lives lived in praise, oriented to you, out of gladness and worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen.